We'll start in verse 11 and finish the chapter. So here we go. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Push pause for a second. If you're unfamiliar with that language, a Gentile is a non-Jew. That was the main division in Paul's time. You had Jewish folks, and then you had Gentiles. Now, if you're part Jew or you're Jewish, you would have been considered Jewish. If you're like me and don't have an ounce of Jewish in you, you're a Gentile. I would have, in fact, guessed that most of you are probably Gentiles. That's what he's talking about here, okay? So let's push unpause. But when he came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's, also, that's Peter as well, it's the same person, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have, been, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. This is God's Word. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, would you take these words that we're about to study and would you open them? Would you open them, Lord, as it were, as a magnificent gift that you have given your people to enjoy, to see, and to know you by, oh Lord? Lord, would you please be with me as I'm not feeling well and I have a way of saying things that are not always clear and um, I ask that you would help me tonight and that you would make real on the hearts of uh, my friends tonight, oh Lord, the things that you deem as true and everything else would fall to the ground as it were. Would you be with my friends? Would you grant them attention for the next 25 minutes or so? Would you grant that they would be able to hear with ears of faith that Jesus Christ loves sinners? And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, my friend Elbert McGowan, who's a campus minister at Jackson State uh, with RUF in Mississippi, uh, tells the story of Dickie Simpson. Has anybody ever heard of Dickie Simpson? Okay, look around the room. There's no hands raised. Okay? It's really surprising that you've never heard of Dickie Simpson, though, and here's why. Would you know that he has more NBA rings than LeBron James does? He he has three of them, and you've never heard of him. 
And here's why. You see, Dickie Simpson uh, was part of the Chicago Bulls from 1996 to 1998. Yet, in the 96 and 97 uh, championship series, he had zero points, zero rebounds, zero assists, zero blocks, and zero steals. Do you know why? Because he played zero minutes. Yet, yet, his ring is the same cut, the same quality, and the same design as Michael Jordan's, Scottie Pippen's as well, and the rest of the team. Yet, he played zero minutes. Now, he was on their team, and he benefited from their work, their sweat, and their effort. He, in the record books, is a champion, and he did nothing. Isn't that amazing? I know. I I think it's funny, too. It's okay. Look, here's why I'm bringing this up. This receiving everything while contributing nothing, if we're honest, frustrates us. Because how many of you have ever had to do group projects? They're the worst. And here's why. Because there are people in your group who work their butts off, and there are people who don't. And then when the grade comes, if it's a good grade, they get everything and they did nothing. I hated group projects in college. I'm sure you do too for various reasons. But the point is this. We want things to be earned, not given. That's what you and I most want. That's the way that we think the world ought to work. And so when we hear of receiving without earning, we become mad or cynical or bitter or skeptical. It doesn't make us happy. But I want you to know today that what we're going to look at with what Paul is getting at, something that's at the heart of Christianity, is a doctrine that teaches the thing that we hate. Let me say that again. The heart of Christianity really is the thing that we hate. And it's the Dickie Simpson principle. Here it is. Ready? You receive everything while doing nothing. You receive everything while doing nothing. Why? How can this be? Here's why. Because at the heart of Paul's argument here in Galatians 2 is the principle of substitution. That is, somebody doing something and somebody else getting credit for that something. To be specific, the doctrine of justification by substitution says that we bring nothing to the table, and yet we are counted righteous. That is the thing received. That is the championship ring through the efforts, work, and obedience of another, namely Jesus. Paul is going to, in this text take a square into the courtroom. He's going to pick up and use a lot of courtroom language. So if you're a pre-law person, welcome. I'm glad you're here tonight. You're going to love this. If you're not, you're going to have to hang on because he's going to get quite technical. But I think that three main categories that are going to help us tonight are this. We're going to see the charges, the verdict, and then lastly, the judgment. The charges, the verdict, and the judgment is what Paul is going to highlight for us tonight. So let's turn, if you will, to this first part of Galatians, beginning in 2.11, and let's take a look about the charge. What do we learn? Well, we learn right out of the gate about 
Peter, another apostle, not Paul, but Peter, both P names. And Peter was a Jew. He had come down to the city of Antioch from Jerusalem, and in light of a recent history, he being a Jew, had had a revelation that you can find out about in Acts chapter 10 that God gave to him that showed him that those dirty Gentiles, the people that he did not associate with for his whole life, had finally begun to be accepted in God's sight. And so in light of that, God tells Peter, it's okay, man. You can start having fellowship with these people. Now, why was that okay? Because underneath Mosaic law, in your Old Testament, if you were to go to Leviticus, and Genesis even, Exodus, Leviticus, you're going to read about the old law, ceremonial laws that made people unclean. And one of those things was for a Jew to have fellowship, to have a meal with a Gentile. That made him ceremoniously, unceremonially unclean. And what he is now doing is living freely in light of the Gospel by eating with these Gentile Christians that had been converted until, until some people that follow him from Jerusalem come to Antioch. And you know what? He starts hitting the panic button. And he doesn't know what to do. And so Peter, not Paul, Peter retreats from table fellowship with those Gentile believers. Why? Because he is scared to death of what that group coming in from Jerusalem is going to think about him. Moreover, whether or not they will accept him. Whether he will be in the club, so to speak, with these believers. Now, why is that so important? Because... Paul, the writer of Galatians, is going to have none of it. Zero. And so he says, if you'll look there in the text, he says, but then I confronted him, I said to Cephas before them all, and then he basically calls Peter out for his behavior. Now, why is this so incredibly important? Because... By pulling away from eating with these Gentiles, Peter Peter was saying in a nonverbal way, hang with me, if you want to be accepted by God, you've got to be Jewish. If you want to be accepted by the Heavenly Father, then you need to be able to keep all of the Jewish code and law. That's what he was saying. Peter, in other words, was an elitist. And in this incident, we get to see Peter's racism. He was a hypocrite. And Paul will have none of it, and so he confronts him. The key point is this. He was saying, Paul was, or Peter was, by his actions, that acceptance with God is to be had by keeping all the old laws. Peter's deeper belief in the moment in the moment, was what he was living by. Now that's a key distinction. He wants you to begin to see that what was really reigning in Peter's heart was something radically different than what was coming out of Peter's mouth. Now, why is this so important? I think this causes us to focus for just a second. My point is this. The charge that is being leveled against Peter is one of works righteousness. That if you want to be accepted by God, you have to have Jesus, as we said last week, plus something else. It must be Jesus plus keeping the food kosher laws. 
And Paul is saying, no. In the Gospel, Jesus plus anything, whatever that anything is, is utterly obliterated. That man is acceptable in God's sight by Jesus and Jesus alone. A couple of things to point out. This forces all of us for one second, I think, to pause and to go, wait a second here. This is Peter, one of Jesus' boys that has gotten this wrong. What does that say about me, a TCU student, 2,000 years removed, about what I think acceptability looks like with Jesus? I just want to begin to raise the question to you that there might be something going on in your heart and life in this very moment that you would say, Jesus is really going to be happy with me and accept me if I take Him plus X, fill in the blank. I don't know what that is for you, but I guarantee you it's a temptation. Now, at this point, you might be saying, Ryan, you're sounding like a broken record. I've been here for five weeks. You've been saying the same stuff for five weeks. Can we move on? I want you to listen to what Derek Webb, a singer-songwriter, once told in a story. Listen to what he says. He says, um, I, heard, um, I heard a story about, this is Derek saying, about Martin Luther, the old reformer. And uh, there was a group of people that came to him in his church, and they said, Pastor, why is it that week after week after week, all you ever preach to us is the gospel? Implying that we're ready to move on to something else. Certainly, we know this by now. And Luther's response was, well, because week after week, you keep forgetting it. Because week after week, you walk in here, and you look like a people who don't believe the gospel. And until you walk in here looking like people who are truly liberated by the truth of the gospel, I'll continue to preach it to you until I die. And so he did. Look, why is this so important to Luther? Why is it so important to Paul? Here's why. Because if you look down here, you will see that he says that he was not, in verse 14, that Peter was not living in step with the truth of the gospel. And that simply means that the gospel is needed, you all, not just for something at the beginning of our lives, but it's needed for the entirety of our lives. It's not just something that you believe and then you sort of get on with and you say, oh, I believed the gospel when I was 11 and I don't need that anymore. No, 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 no. Paul is adamant saying that what you need more than anything for the rest of your life is the gospel. And the reason why is because it fuels everything that you do. And if you get that wrong, you'll get everything else wrong. You see, here's what I mean. Some of you right now are so nervous that you're actually here and not studying. You can't believe that you actually set foot in here, which I'm proud of you that you did, but here's why you're upset. You might be going, oh gosh, I hope he doesn't go past 10. Because deep down, you believe that those grades of yours give you your worth. That they give you your dignity. That they're the thing that's going to give you your liberation. If you can just get that A, then my life will be good. Then I'll finally be accepted and I can be okay with myself because I have this grade. And I want to suggest to you, eh, not if you're a Christian. Here's why. Because your acceptability comes in Jesus. And what makes you valuable is not an A, B, C, D, or guess what? Even an F. What makes you acceptable is Jesus Christ. Or for some of you, the grades aren't about acceptability. 
The grades are actually about a future that you're so scared of that you can't see the future of. You're control freaks. You got any contr- I'm a control freak, okay? And so I'm scared to death that if I don't get that A, I'm not going to get the, the good job. Well, let me remind you something, dear Christian. Do you remember what the gospel tells us? It tells us that the God that loves us is in control of the planets whirling around the universe right now. And that same God is the God who is controlling every single subatomic particle, making sure that the charges remain positive and negative and that the whole world just doesn't fall apart. That's what he's doing right now in this moment. And if he's doing that in this moment, let me just ask you something. Do you think your job is a problem for him? A little bit of gospel sanity for you tonight. It's not. The gospel liberates you from feeling like you have to control your world by your grades. Now, go study. Be a good student. That's why you're here. But listen to this. Don't be a slave to your grades. And some of you are. I would say most of you are. I was. I've got friends that will tell you they can't remember what they made on a biochem exam. I can't. My life's still pretty good. It really is. You know? So my point is, is this. The gospel is needed for all of life. Every last step of it. And Paul wants you to begin to see that. Secondly, we've talked about the charge. Now let's begin to look at the second point I want to make. The verdict. And yes, I've got to move to cover some ground. But here is the basic point that I want you to see. Look with me at... The verses down on and down on from where we were looking, he says this. He says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 19. In other words, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Now listen, what is he getting at? Paul wants you to know one thing that Peter and him and you and me have one verdict underneath above us. And you know what it is? It's guilty. Because here is the law, the law that's set forth that we ought not do X and we must do Y. And you know what? We can't keep it. And so because we can't keep it perfectly, all of us, all of us are guilty. And so in that sense, the law has killed us. Some of you and me try to keep thinking that if I just keep trying to keep up, if you just give me the list of spiritual things to do, then God will finally accept me. And I'm telling you, that paradigm, that way of doing things, leads to nothing but death. That's what this is about. Now listen, think about it like this. There was a, um, there was, I I don't know if you saw this, but it was absolutely stunning. There was uh, a girl that had been, uh, I don't know, she got picked up on probably some uh, minor charge or whatnot. And in so doing, she, uh, as she got picked up, she was set now before the judge, and the judge was going to set her bond. And he said, your bond is set for like $5,000. And flippantly and very disrespectfully, she just said, adios, and walked away. And the judge said, excuse me, ma'am, ma'am, can you come back here? Do you not know that I can hold you in contempt of court? Did you just say adios to the court? And she said, "Uh, yeah, fine, you can do whatever you want. And so he says, okay, I hold you in $10,000 on $10,000 bond. 
you know, da-da-da-da-da. And she, I'm not kidding, you can, there's video of this. She flips the judge a bird and says, F you, and then walks off. And the judge says, all right, young lady. At this point, he says, I do hold you in contempt of court, and I sentence you to 30 days in jail. Why do I tell you that story? Because that's, that girl is us. At every turn, we are trying to say, at every turn, y'all, we're trying to say, just I'll do, I'm kicking and screaming. I'll fight against this law with all that I've got. And I'm trying to tell you that Paul wants you to see you must let the law kill you. You must let it say the true things about you. Are you ready for what it says? Here we go. It says this, that you and me are utterly guilty. And because of that, we're condemned. We're condemned. Let that sink in for just a second. Don't wiggle out from underneath it. You're guilty. You're guilty. And because of that, because of that, a just judge sentences you to punishment. You're guilty. Don't wiggle out from underneath it. Let it kill you. Here's why this is so important. Because unless you let the law kill you, unless you let it say true things about you, the gospel means nothing. It will mean nothing to you. That's where we're going to go in a moment. But I just want you to begin to see the verdict against you is dead. One of the things that I have mentioned with a family member is this. They have said, Ryan, nobody can live like that. We can't really that be that bad off. Nobody can live like that. If we went through the day looking at all the ways that we don't measure up perfectly, then we'd be screwed. And I just smiled and said, you're exactly right. We would be. And apart from anything inside of ourselves, we are. Now listen, this is absolutely vital to Paul's argument because of where he's going to go. So imagine this. The jury has deliberated. The judge has said to the foreman, Foreman, have you reached a verdict? He stands up and says, Your Honor, we have, and begins to take the guilty verdict over to the bench. And he lays it on the desk. That's where we're at right now. Point number three, the judgment. The judge is going to take open that note, read what the jury has written, and this is what he says. Ready? Dear Ryan, dear Bennett, dear Alicia, the court has found you not guilty. And the courtroom goes crazy. In U.S. jurisprudence, the judge has the power to take the verdict by the jury and overturn it if it is unreasonable. That is real law. It's called uh, judgment notwithstanding verdict. And that is what's happening here in this letter because here's why. The law, the jury, has not considered all the data. And do you know what one piece of data has been left out? Here it is. That I have been crucified with Christ. That I've got the rings because of what somebody else has done. 
Paul is saying that the doctrine of justification is this. That you, though guilty, have been now liberated because of somebody else's condemnation, namely Jesus's. The theologians used to call this the great exchange. That which God was rightfully to level on you and me, He did to Jesus. And what Jesus ought to have rightly received from the Father was given to you and me. And so there was a great exchange that happened. How might I illustrate or tell you a little bit more about this? You might be able to think of it um, something like this. That, let's say that there is a file of all of your sin and junk that exists. And God pulls out that long, <laughs> that long file, looks at all the data, and sees over its pages the work that is finished of Jesus. And He says, here's the data, you're cleared. Think of it like this. You have a bank account. You have a negative balance. It's a million bucks in the red, so to speak. The Gospel does this. It comes to you and it pardons you your debt. But guess what? That's called forgiveness. And that's why I've titled this More Than Forgiveness. Because if I forgive your debt, what is your balance? Zero. You need more than zero. And so what God does in the, on the other side of our justification and what making us crediting righteousness to us, He says, here's the storehouse of heaven and it's now placed in your account. That is what Paul wants you to see right here in this text. That the doctrine of justification is that you have done nothing and that you have received everything. The doctrine of justification says that you have been set right and declared righteous in God's eyes because of the work of another. And your record, your track history is utterly not considered in the court. It doesn't mean that you are now perfect in the sense that you never sin again. No, it means that when Jesus looks at you, He sees Jesus' record and His righteousness and He says, enter, come be with Me because of the work of another. I'll close with this illustration, another sports one. Sarah Chikolsky of Western Oregon uncorked the first home run in her career. It was a three-run shot over center field, and this was a first for her in college or high school. And as she is rounding first base in her incredible excitement, she misses the bag. No big deal. All she has to do is turn around and come touch it. However, as she turns to turn, come back around, she throws out and blows out her ACL. She literally has to crawl back to the bag. She looks up at the umpire and her coach and says, I can't make it around the bases. I can't walk. The umpire says, if you don't go across all the bags, it, your home run doesn't count by the rules. She says, well, can I have somebody else come run it for me? A pinch runner. And he says, it's only a single if so. And then in a mark, 
of unprecedented sportsmanship, something spectacular happens. The first baseman from the other team turns to the ump and says, can we carry her around the bag? And so the second baseman walks over, and this first baseman, whose name is Mallory Holtman and Liz Wallace, carry Sarah around the bases on their shoulders as she reaches down with her good leg and touches every one of the bags. This made the three-run homer official and ended the drama, but it also ended something else. That was Central Washington's end to an undefeated season in the championship game. With the home run counting, the season was now over for Central Washington. Mallory and Liz's efforts secured their opponent's victory at the cost of theirs. Why do I tell you this? Setting it up on a platter. On the cross, Jesus, in the name of incredible love, not sportsmanship, gave up not his season, but his life. He gave himself up for helpless people, people like you and me who were guilty under the law. But on the cross, his death was ours. His perfect life then became ours. The death we deserve for the life we lived, he received. It is indeed, as we have sang tonight, upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, a stake, a stake my whole eternity. That is the gospel, you guys. It is the meat and potatoes of what Christianity is all about. It takes broken people, sinners like you and me, and utterly makes them perfect in God's eyes. I beg you, believe that tonight. It will nourish your souls. It will set you free. It is the only thing that can set you free. Would you believe it? Let's pray.